Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, I'm Ross Ingalls. Did you know that in 2019, New Zealanders drove 35 billion kilometres by car, the equivalent of Earth to Mars and back 325 times? That Māori and Pacifica miss out far more than other groups on visiting GPs because of lack of transport, that transport accounts for 43% of domestic CO2 emissions, and that more than half of those come from private vehicles. This country's transport system has problems. Identifying those problems and proposing solutions was the task of a report released in November by the Helen Clark Foundation. It's called Tiara Matatika, or The Fair Path, and it was written by WSP fellow Holly Walker. Holly, welcome to this climate business. Let's start with a question. Many, many things are broken in New Zealand. Why focus on transport? Well, kia ora, Ross, and thank you so much for having me. Um, and look, that's a good question. You know, my background is as a social justice person, really, and a social policy researcher. So before I started work on this project, I probably had never thought all that much about transport as an equity issue before. You know, of course, I knew it was a major contributor to, to our greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but I hadn't really thought too hard about how it relates to those wider social and economic issues. Um, as you say, many of which are very broken um, in Aotearoa until I started research for this report. Um, And then when I did, of course, I realised that, you know, obviously transport is integral to every part of our lives. It's what uh, enables our work lives. It enables our educational opportunities. uh, It facilitates our social connections. And the infrastructure that supports the transport system, you know, our roads, our public transport, our active transport networks, that has a huge impact on the homes, on the streets and the communities that we live in. So it really does touch every part of our lives. I thought maybe very quickly um, I'd tell one of the stories that opens the report, which is about a, a young woman called Hannah. Now, she's a fictional character. She's not a real person. But there are thousands and thousands of people in situations just like hers, and it maybe illustrates just how transport reaches through every aspect of our lives. So if we imagine Hannah as a 21-year-old who lives with her family and she's a student uh, studying to, to be a social worker and she works part-time as a cleaner in the CBD a few nights a week. Um, so she bought a car because that seemed like the cheapest and most convenient way to get to uni and because it was safer late at night uh, leaving her cleaning job. Um, and she's in debt because of that. Uh, so she's paying high interest repayments on that car. And then imagine that it fails its warrant. Uh, so suddenly uh, she can't afford to, to get the new tyres that it needs. Um, so she's got this car, she's paying the repayments on it. Um, she does switch to public transport to get to uni, but, she, but you know she really doesn't feel safe leaving that job late at night. So she does still get in the unwarranted car to drive to work um, because she's scared of being assaulted basically on, on the street when she's leaving work late at night. So of course, you know, she's going to get a ticket at some point for driving an unwarranted car that she also can't afford to pay. And so she's probably going to pay that back in instalments. And before we know it, uh, we've got someone spending, you know, up to a third of their income on transport-related costs, mostly on a car that she can't actually drive. Uh, So she's paying double, she's paying twice, she's paying for the public transport and the car that she can't drive. Uh, She's getting up earlier, staying up later, she's getting tired and stressed, her grades are suffering you know, and so you can see it has this like ripple effect 
So those constrained transport options um, compound to really have an impact on, on every aspect of her life and have a major influence on her opportunities. Um, and so that, I think, really is why transport is a good way into both uh, climate change issues, but also equity issues as well, because if we can get it right, we can make a really big difference on both of those fronts. Right. And... The report says that it isn't enough to just reduce the carbon emissions in our transport system. It also needs to be fairer. Tell us why those two ambitions are inseparable. Mm, Yeah, sure. So, you know, that story I just told you illustrated, I think there's lots of ways in which our current car-dominated transport system is constraining some people's mobility and opportunities. And this is contributing to major inequities. So if we think about it in terms of what are the barriers to mobility and how the transport system as it's currently configured, you know, creates those barriers. They can be things like cost. So that's maybe the cost of petrol, the cost of owning or maintaining a car or the cost of public transport, or even the opportunity cost of the work that you don't do because you can't get get there. Um, but it can be other types of barriers too, like accessibility barriers. So, um, so let's say you live somewhere that's not well served by public transport or because of uh, physical uh, impairment of some kind, you're not actually physically able to board the public transport options or, or to drive. Um, and there are safety barriers too. So in that example, you know, Hannah was scared to um, take public transport late at night because she was afraid of uh, being hassled on the street. Um, but of course, there are major safety risks of actually being hit by a car or injured on the road um, or being afraid to cycle because it you know, you might enjoy biking, but you might not feel confident cycling in traffic. So those things can constrain people's mobility. And just practical things like um, you might live near public transport, but it doesn't go where you need to go at the time you need to, to go. Or, you know, the traffic uh, congestion situation is so bad that you just don't even bother uh, going somewhere at the time you need to go because, you know, you'll be sitting in traffic for such a long time. So those kinds of barriers, they... Um, can cause poverty and disadvantage. Um, so, for example, low-income households spend. So that you know that example I gave that was a fictional one, but it's based on the statistics which indicate people in low-income households tend to spend more than a third of their income on transport-related costs. Um, or disabled people who miss out on a lot of work and social opportunities because they cannot access transport to get to those things. Um, so it's compounding existing inequalities. You know, the people who are most likely to be affected are Māori, they're disabled people, they're people on low incomes, they're LGBTQI plus people, Pacific people, other ethnic minorities. You know, so we have existing uh, inequities for these groups and then the transport inequities are compounding and worsening those existing inequities. Right. Um, in terms of about, you know, the question of why we have to address um, climate change and fairness together, I think the answer to that is really the solutions are the same, you know, so we know that if we get it right we, and we can reduce our dependence on cars and reduce our the, the number of kilometres we travel in private vehicles, um, that's obviously going to be really uh, significant for reducing our transport-related emissions, but it's also going to be really good for equity because it, it frees people from being forced to own or maintain a car that they can't really afford. Um, it promotes greater health and physical activity, and it helps to foster connection and community. Right. So I guess what's new here is that uh, that you've, you've drawn this line between something that we're already familiar with, the links between transport policy and carbon emissions. And in this, in this case, what's new is the, the link to, to uh, social policy. 
That's right. And the exciting thing is we have the opportunity to um, to address both at the same time. The solutions are the same. The solutions that are going to help us reduce our car dependence and our um, transport-related carbon emissions are also going to foster greater equity. Um, so we've got doubly good reasons to pursue this. But there are some risks. And so I think we're at a place right now, you know, we're awaiting the final emissions reduction plan from, from the government later this year. We've seen the draft of that and we've seen there's a strong emphasis in that on reducing transport related emissions and, and, and in, you know, some quite ambitious targets to reduce vehicle kilometres travelled, which is great, you know, really positive development to see. But there are some risks that if we don't um, pursue those policies with a sufficient focus on equity, we might inadvertently do it in a way that worsens or entrenches these um, these inequities that I've been talking about. You know, so mm. for example, uh, let's say we have a we have a congestion pricing scheme, um, probably to be uh, introduced first in Auckland, but potentially in other cities around around the country later. Right. If, that, if a scheme like this is not designed with equity in mind, there is some risk that it could further suppress the mobility of groups who are already disadvantaged because it adds to the cost of, of mobility and they're already in a position where those costs are proportionally higher. Um, whereas those who've got the resources to pay for it might not really change their behaviour much at all. Um, so... I think the reason to look at these two things together is we're, we're at a moment right now where we're sort of come to understand how much change is needed and that we are going to have to make massive changes to how we get around to meet our emissions reductions targets. But we have an opportunity now to design the way we do that with equity at the heart of it so that we don't inadvertently worsen those social inequities at the same time as we're pursuing that very important goal of, of emissions reduction. Okay, so let's take a look at the report itself. Uh, what you've done in the report is that you've looked under the hood of the decision process that have given us the transport system that we've got today. And it homes in on the cost-benefit analysis that underpins many transport investment decisions. So what is the problem there? Mm, so um, I imagine that, that uh, many of your listeners are familiar with, with the CBA, the cost-benefit analysis. Basically, it involves identifying and measuring and applying a value to all the potential costs and benefits of a project, a, a transport project in this case, and then sort of aggregating all of those up to give it an overall score that says, um, you know, is it in the positive? Is it going to be more benefits than costs from doing this project? Or if it's got a, a small or a negative score, you might not proceed with it. So the problem is that um, that, oh, that um, this this form of analysis and this decision-making tool is not really well uh, equipped to consider the social impacts of transport decisions, um, and especially the fact that those impacts are not evenly distributed between different groups. So sometimes they're just not even factored in. You know, it's very easy to put a measurable economic cost on certain um, certain things, you know, uh, very measurable things that might be included as part of the, the CBA, like construction costs or current demand, journey times, um, potential job creation, things like that. But it's much harder um, to put a, a numerical value on things like um, unmet mobility need, current unmet mobility need, and whether it will be unlocked or not, or the gendered patterns of transport, like the fact that women and men actually tend to have a different transport pattern. And so uh, depending on the design of the project, it may serve one group uh, better than the other. We know, for example, that our public transport system tends to support um, 
what is a, generally a more male pattern of commuting from the suburbs into the CBD, whereas women might be more likely to be making a number of trips from school to a part-time job to daycare, to the supermarket, back to school and home again, and, and our public transport um, doesn't necessarily support that pattern of journeys very well at the moment. So none of those things can be easily factored into the CBA, and so they tend to either be left out entirely, or there'll be a little comment put like saying, oh, uh, we're aware there might be some uh, equity factors here, but they can't be reflected in the CBA. And so the decision makers don't have good information or a good um, sense of the equity impact of the decision that they're making embedded in that CBA to use it as a tool to, to make um, transport decisions that are in the interests of both equity and emissions reduction. Right. So let's broaden the scope. The, the report talks about reprogramming the decision-making policies and processes that govern the transport system. But what, do you, what would that involve exactly beyond um, adjusting the mm. uh, cost-benefit analysis model? Yeah, so I guess with this idea of reprogramming, we were thinking about the fact that it can be quite easy to think about current systems. You know, we have a very car-dominated transport system currently, and we have um, this whole series of planning systems and processes that sit behind that, that have generated that over many decades and that perpetuate it. So um, the national policy statement that is generated at central government level that then determines the investment profile that Waka Kotahi will use to determine which which projects to fund. You know, it's um, for a very long time been very uh, heavily uh, dominated by roading decisions by, um, you know, road infrastructure rather than active or public transport infrastructure. Um, and it's easy to sometimes feel like those systems are immovable, immutable, sort of almost uh, natural features that we have to work around. But of course they're not. They, you know, people made those systems. People uh, inputted the values that determine how those decisions are made and uh, people can change them. And in this case, our political leaders can change them if we send them a clear message that that's what we want them to do. So when we talk about reprogramming the transport system, we're talking things like... Um, starting with a very clear vision that says, you know, the purpose of the transport system is to enable everybody to get where they need to go affordably, accessibly, on time, and in ways that protect the planet. And that, that everybody means everybody, right? It's not about um, facilitating the needs of some groups, but not others. Mm. And that flowing down from a, a vision like that, uh, through all of those um, policy documents and planning processes, if you embed that vision and the values and the things that you're trying to achieve, you would start to generate a different profile of transport decision-making. You know, so we advocate putting sort of the twin goals underneath that vision of improving equity and reducing car dependence. Like those are the two twin um, key priorities in support of that vision. And then integrating that vision and those priorities through all those decision-making processes. It, it will take time, you know, for those, changes to take effect um, but over time you would expect to see them begin to generate a very different kind of transport system from the one we have now if we decided that those were the things we wanted to make most important. Right so do you, do you get the sense that there is uh, the political appetite to make these changes that you're recommending? I think that there is some yes so we've had a number of uh, really positive discussions with the transport minister, Michael Wood, about 
this report and a previous one we did in 2020 about low traffic neighbourhoods. And he has indicated to us that he is, you know, really keen to move in this kind of direction. I think he does, he's someone who really does understand the integral connections between transport equity and climate change. And, you know, I believe that that the government as a whole at the moment, and, and we see that reflected in the work on the emissions reduction plan, you know, is in, is intending to make, um, to, to, to meet those climate change obligations that we've committed to. Um, how, however, I suppose what we, what, what is going to be needed is for the general public to send a really clear message, both to central and local government decision makers, that this is the direction we want to move in and that, uh, you know, we're on board with the idea that our transport system is going to be very different in the future and our communities, um, you know, our communities are going to look different um, because they'll, they're more likely to resemble, instead of that hub and spoke model into a central, so I'm talking mainly here about cities, it's important mm, to say, mm-hmm, but instead mm-hmm. of that hub and spoke model into the CBD, we might, our cities might look more like a series of smaller um you know, satellite villages, I suppose, where everything is quite accessible within your local community, your work, your school or your educational opportunities, you know, your social networks are all quite close. Um, And we've all had a bit of a taste of this um, during the last two years of the pandemic, sticking much closer to home um, and being able to get where we need to go in much shorter distances and uh, and spend a lot more of our time close to home. You know, reducing that overall need to travel is probably one of the, the most critical things we can do in terms of reducing our transport-related emissions profile. Mm. I suppose we're talking not just about policy changes, yeah, political moves, if you like, but but we're also talking about changing a culture because um, New Zealanders love their cars. Absolutely. Yep, and that's that's a really important point and a really significant um barrier and something, you know, it is, it's a cultural change. You know, cars have this cultural uh, symbolism (laughs) to us, the symbols of um, freedom, you know, they've been advertised to us this way for many years as though uh, they're sort of representations of our personality, you know, the the model, the make, the size, the colour that we choose, you know, reflects something about our essential being and, um, you know, that they are a tool of freedom, you know, I remember when I was growing up, you know, the idea of getting your driver's license was sort of like mm-hmm. this really significant step because you were suddenly much more independent and you could go wherever you wanted to go. Yeah, you suddenly know, you're an adult. It's, mm. That's right. It's deeply embedded in our culture and it is going to be really difficult to change. I do feel like that is changing though. I do know a lot of younger people think differently about driving and about cars because m- many people um, who are sort of in that teenage early adulthood stage now are super aware of climate change in particular but also equity issues and and super committed to the changes that need to happen to address those but Mm. yes you're right um it's a chicken and egg thing really because a lot of the time once people have had a taste of experience and what it's like to live in a city that is different where we don't have to get in our car to go everywhere um and many people have who've lived overseas and then come back to Aotearoa know know this feeling you know, there are many, many major cities in other parts of the world 
where car ownership is not common and where it's it's very easy to walk out your door and get a public transport option to where you need to go. Many, many people are cycling. Um, and it's very, it, it's freeing, you know. We talk about a feeling of lightness and independence. Actually, not being reliant on a car to do those things feels amazing. Um, but people have to have had a bit of a taste of that uh, before they really can... Uh, sense the benefit and maybe be prepared to, to make that shift in thinking. Another of, of the solutions that the report raises is the 20-minute the city. That's what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah, that's mm. right. Yeah, so that's one, yeah, that's a, a nice sort of container to put these ideas I'm talking about in. And, and the idea of that is basically that from from within 20 minutes of your home, either on foot, on a bike, or on a public transport trip, you should be able to access most of the um, most of the things you need in terms of social work, education, and and um, essential essential retail and things like that. Um, and so that changes how we design our um, future developments, but also would have implications for how how we use our current um, use our current neighbourhoods. Um, the the company that we partnered with to produce this report, WSP, um, have a have an in, an insert in the report talking about the 20-minute city and some of the opportunities for equity that it presents, uh, but also wrote their own report specifically on this last year, which is interesting to take a look at if people are interested in this concept. Um, but it's it's a it's a concept that's catching on around the world um, because again it has this very uh, it basically, it frees us up from spending hours a day sitting in our car, which is a hugely unproductive use of our time, and yep. tends to. There's also really good research that it has a major impact on our stress, on our mental and physical well-being. It tends to make us very uh, stressed because it's mm. not enjoyable, and it's often um, really tense if you know that you, you're potentially going to be late to where you're trying to get to. You know, um, There are huge well-being benefits from getting out of our cars. But I think it's really important that we don't put that on individuals as though it's something that we individually can choose. Of course, many individuals are choosing to try to use their cars less, and that's great. But mm. to get that benefit on the societal level is going mm. to require policy change. It's not something that we can leave up to motivated individuals to achieve on their own. One of the things I, I, I did enjoy about the report is that did, you, you floated some um, – provocative ideas for quick start solutions. And one of those was banning uh, internal combustion engine cars immediately. Uh, there's a couple of others. Can you t can you step us through those? Uh, yes. So these are, um, in fact, uh, ideas contributed, as I was mentioning, by our partners at WSP. Um, I'll just pull them up on my screen so I've got them in front of me. So I think one of them was uh, banning uh, fossil fuel cars immediately. Another one was to um, uh, have a buyback scheme for for, yep. for older ICE vehicles. Yep, um, and offering subsidies for EVs, and then supercharging the incentives for public transport. Um, so re drastically reducing the cost to users with um, free or discounted uh, bus or rail passes. Um, yeah, so. Those first two, I feel perhaps less qualified to speak about than the, the third one. Um, but but I suppose the idea, uh, and there's a fourth one too, um, 
which is all, I suppose, all about, it captures everything we've been talking about, the idea of embracing cities that prioritise people over traffic, you know, this mm-hmm. radical idea that our streets and our roads are for people, not for cars, and cars may use them in certain circumstances for certain purposes, but, the, but that it's actually uh, for play and for movement of people and for fostering right. a community that we have. Right. This is the idea of the, the city at a human scale. That's right. Yeah, that's mm. right. So I suppose all of these ideas are trying to, um, they're trying to sort of provide that, um, like a quite a radical shift in thinking about, you know, how, how we get around. I know that over time, there is a policy intent um, to phase out um, internal combustion engine cars um, and, and um, I suppose that the proposal here is just actually let's do a short, sharp shock <laughs> and get that done sooner, you know, because it will have a big impact. Um, the thing is, we need to think really carefully, as I was saying before, about the equity impacts of doing that. So, for example, we know at the moment that uh, people on low incomes are more likely to own older, less safe and probably less fuel efficient vehicles. And so we need to we need to do both at the same time. We need to have the alternatives ready. Um, at the same time as we're um, phasing out the use of ICE vehicles so that we're not inadvertently disadvantaging people who are reliant on those types of vehicles for income or, or wealth reasons. Mm, um, understood. Yeah. Um, well, last question then, and it's a cheeky question. How do you get around yourself? Well, <laughs> I, I actually am in the very privileged position of being able to live in much the way that I'm describing. And I understand that that does put me in quite a privileged position. So I work primarily from home. Uh, I live very close to where my children go to school and daycare. So we usually Mm -hmm. do their drop-offs and pick-ups on foot or on uh, my, my, actually my older daughter now independently takes her scooter to school, which is a lovely thing to see and and, and an experience not that many kids get to have these days because uh, mm-hmm. Because parents are concerned about traffic safety, they often will drive their kids um, contri- contributing to that traffic. You know, it's it's really yes. a, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mm. vicious, vicious cycle. You know, so I, yeah, and I live, I happen to live in a place where um, I'm within a short walk of the supermarket, uh, cafes, you know, both, most of the essential retail that I need. I'm also a Pākehā person on a high income living in a pretty gentrified neighbourhood where all of this is possible and it's well served by public transport. So when I do need to go into the city, I, I have good options of bus and train options to get me there. Mm. Everybody should be able to live like I live now. And unfortunately, there's a huge disparity between people like me who have access to that level of um, transport freedom and, and freedom from cars um, and many, many, many people who would love to live more like that, but for whom the transport infrastructure where they live simply doesn't support it. So, yeah, I've been lucky enough to have a taste, really, of what it could be like, and that makes me feel really strongly about making that uh, an opportunity that everybody gets to have. Holly Walker, thank you for joining this climate business. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. 